the Republic of Ireland Act was signed by the President of Ireland, Sean T. O'Kelly, in Oris and Uchtaron on December 21, 1948. The inauguration of the Republic was delayed until 1949 so as to coincide with the 33rd anniversary of the 1916 Easter Uprising. The British government, recognising that Ireland was no longer a member of the Commonwealth, introduced amending legislation ominously entitled the Government of Ireland Bill. This bill contained a surprise clause, usually called the Guarantee Clause, because it supposedly endowed the Stormont Parliament with the privilege of a powerful veto that partition would not end without their consent. Feelings throughout Ireland were aroused, culminating in a mass demonstration in Dublin's O'Connell Street on the evening of Friday, May 13th, 1949. The crowds were addressed by the leaders of all the political parties. The Taoiseach, John Costello, standing on a platform by Parnell's monument, was first to speak. The Irish nation at home and abroad is united on this issue. We have here on this platform and in this vast concourse of people every class and every creed, every section of the people. We have different parties, different political parties represented. We have as political parties our different aims, our different policies, our different methods of achieving what we all hope for, for the peace, the unity, and the advancement politically and economically of our country. But on this issue, we are all united. And we speak here tonight with one voice. Whatever our political views are, whatever our personal differences in the past may have been, we stand here tonight, being a foil, and a veil, Labour and the public are and the Tulloon, Congress of Irish Union, Labour Party, the party from the north with Mr McIntyre, Mr Conlon and Senator Lennon. We all stand together here tonight and speak with one voice, demanding one thing, and it is much, demanding the XD, XD enforcement here, the application here in this country of those principles of democratic justice and right which the British nation say they are going to apply in Burma, in India, in the far-flung parts of the earth, but they won't apply here. We ask for the application of the principles of justice and democratic rights. We ask for justice, and that's not too much to ask. In return for that, they can have our friendship. If they don't want that, then they'll have our resolute determination to end this cruel wrong. Less than a year before, the British Cabinet were informed by their representative in Ireland, Lord Rugby, that Anglo-Irish relations were friendlier than ever. However, by May 1949, the Irish High Commissioner in London, John Delante, reported that Ernest Bevan had told him that he was long enough in politics to know that when there was talk of guns popping, they usually popped. Bevan also told Delante that the Irish government appeared to feel free to throw a brick at the heads of the British government any time they liked. The brick that Bevan referred to was what Anthony Eden described as the curiously abrupt way John Costello had announced in Canada the Irish government's intention to repeal the External Relations Act. That act 
was considered to be Eyre's last remaining tenuous link with the British Commonwealth. But the crowd celebrating the inauguration of the Republic of Ireland that Easter Monday in 1949 were not worried about the consequences for Eyre of leaving the Commonwealth. Sounded on O'Connell Bridge at one minute past midnight signals the nation's salute to this historic Easter Monday and to the Republic of Ireland. For over 15 minutes, a concentrated display of searchlights has been centred over the bridge. The people have been gathering in O'Connell Street, Dalier Street, Westmoreland Street and the Quays. And now, on their behalf, the army gives its solemn salute of 21 guns. is fired by a battery of the 2nd Field Artillery Regiment of the regular army. Immediately afterwards, a triumphal feu de joie is fired by a party drawn from the Dublin battalions of the Force of successors of the citizen soldiery of Easter week. Rifle fire crackles down the long line, almost to inaudibility, and returns. Messages of goodwill were requested and received from the heads of state throughout the world, including the Pope, the President of America and from King George VI. However, members of Fianna Fáil, led by Eamon de Valera, refused to take part in the celebrations. Eamon de Valera was not alone in refusing to celebrate. Many people were surprised that the pro-Commonwealth Fine Gael-led coalition should break the link with the Commonwealth. They felt that they could not celebrate such an event. Una O'Higgins O'Malley was working in Fine Gael headquarters during the 1948 February elections. She was asked by some of her neighbours, who are of the unionist tradition, how they should vote. They would have said, now tell me, shall we vote for the Barrow or shall we vote for uh, Fine Gael? And I would have said, well, if you're interested in membership of the Commonwealth. Your choice is clear, um, which I took it they were interested in, you know. It, uh, it was really the only distinguishing feature. The 1948 February elections resulted in Fianna Fáil losing its overall majority. A rainbow of five parties and independents joined together to form a coalition. Liam Cosgrave remembers the selection of John Costello as leader of the inter-party coalition government. As a result of discussions at which, so far as Fine Gael was concerned, and most of which were held in General Mulcahy's house in Rathmines, it was agreed that John Costello would be put forward as Taoiseach because he was acceptable to the other parties as a person who had not been directly involved in the civil war and who was considered a neutral in the in the sense of although he was a party person he was not personally involved in the way some other politicians had been on different sides and who are now prepared to agree together he was reluctant to 
take the appointment. He was a modest man. Uh, at the same time, he recognised that it was his duty to do so, and after a good deal of discussion, he accepted it. The question now was, could a workable government be formed? Ronan Fanning, Professor of Modern History, University College Dublin, comments on the difficulties that faced John Costello. He had, I think, a very, very difficult task. He wasn't chosen, he wasn't nominated, he didn't, as it were, emerge as Taoiseach until many of the other ministers in the cabinet had effectively been already nominated. He didn't have control, in other words, over the ministerial appointments. That was a matter for the individual leaders of parties within what was an extraordinary ragtag and bobtail of a coalition, the most diffuse uh, collection of parties which has ever formed a coalition government in, in, in Ireland. Besides the Civil War memories, there were even conflicts among the leaders of the smaller parties. Jack McQuillan, then a parliamentary member of Sean McBride's Clonapublica party. It must be handed to uh, Clonathaloon, who, uh, whose who's, uh, leader, Joe Bloig, was just as keen as McBride on afforestation and resented very much the fact that McBride tried to cash in on what he was doing. Sean McBride, when appointed Minister of External Affairs, agreed to suspend his party's policy of breaking the Stirling Link and repealing the External Relations Act. This could not have been popular with the party. Jack McQuillan comments on the allegiance of several parliamentary members of Clonna Publica. The composition of the, of the doll itself was McBride, IRA, John Tully, Cavan, Extreme IRA, Paddy, Paddy Fanucan of Tipperary, Extreme IRA, Conlahan, IRA interned, Mick Fitzpatrick, IRA interned, uh, Joe Brennan, uh, the coroner of Dunleary was an IRA man too. Even during the period that I was in the Dáil, the incidents took place above in the north. And on one occasion, a gentleman that was involved in one of those incidents in America, in the, in, with, a, with an, uh, an R UC barracks arrived down in the doll with plaster and everything else on him from the raid that he had been in the previous night. This is Clon, the public deputy. The clan, he wasn't a deputy. He was a supporter of the clan in the north, yeah. who was very well associated with the, the leadership of Clon Republica. And it was down here he came. Even within Clon Republica, there were different political philosophies. Pat Cowan was the first deputy to resign. Father Cowan was, was booted out of the party. Why? Well, now, I, uh, I don't, I wouldn't like to, to, to comment on that because uh, uh, could I say this, that Pather and McBride were very much at loggerheads and there was unquestionably a personality clash and if you knew how the clan was run and the type of man Pather Cowan was, it was a mystery that he stayed that long in it. And I would say that all along the line that he presented a major obstacle to McBride in the sense that he wasn't in the inner circle of the IRA and the, the clan was run by the IRA men who had been around McBride. How would you rate Cowan? 
as an individual, one of the, f the best deputies that I, I have ever seen. And uh, uh, he was uh, the word torment to the doll to the to the political parties doesn't do him justice, because he was most constructive in it. But he was a torment in the way he went about it. Why then did Padre Cowan start asking embarrassing questions in the Dáil about the External Relations Act? If you like, this was Padre's way of getting, putting the boot into MacBride. That's my impression of it. It may sound simple, but he wanted to make sure that uh, this idea of the British King signing the Irish papers, he was totally against that, and he wanted to see what action was being taken on it. During question time in the Dáil in July and the adjournment debate in August 1948, Padre Cowan forced John Costello, Sean McBride and Tornishta and Labour Party leader William Norton to admit that Era was no longer a member of the Commonwealth. Following these admissions, did the Cabinet decide to repeal the External Relations Act? Professor Patrick Lynch was Private Secretary to the Taoiseach, John Costello. My own belief is that that decision was taken at an ad hoc meeting of ministers in Minister House late at night, before the 19th of August, 1948. With any consideration as to the reprisals from No, whatever. That I am aware of. Why? There had been no discussion with civil servants. In the summer of 1948, the government were also under pressure from Eamon de Valera's anti-partition campaign. Costello responded to these pressures by declaring in the Dáil on the 23rd of July 1948, I say here, realising that I must speak with restraint and a sense of responsibility, that for the first time since 1922, this cabinet will, by its policy and its actions, give some hope of bringing back to this country the six northeastern counties of Ulster. Did Costello, McBride, James Dillon and the Minister of Defence, Dr Tom O'Higgins, expect to bargain neutrality for partition during the summer of 1948? In particular, what was Sean McBride's position in relation to defence negotiations with the British? Was he under pressure from the members of his own party, Jack McQuillan? He was. He was under, I would say, that they gave him a chance. They gave him every chance. And... Uh, it's only afterwards that you could see what he was at, as far as the British were concerned, that uh, his motivation became clearer, that he hated Britain above all else. And it explains why he was prepared. He wanted to be in the, the European defence, but he couldn't do it because he couldn't accept the British. So he went to the Americans, and nobody in the clan, to my knowledge, had the slightest idea that he was while he was a Minister for External Affairs, that he was discussing with the Americans the idea of a, a backdoor entrance to NATO. Dr Noel Brown was Minister of Health in that coalition government. He recollects a discussion about partition between Clonna Public member Noel Hartnett and the Secretary of State for Commonwealth Relations, Philip Noel Baker. I was at the meetings in uh, Mayo when Ackley came over with uh, the Noel Baker and visit to Mayo and there's no doubt in my mind that we had a very hectic uh, came down to tea Phyllis made tea for us in our cottage. This and was yourself, um, Sean McBride? Hartness, Hartness. Noel Hartness and uh, Noel Baker. Noel, Philip Noel Baker. Yes. Secretary uh, of State for the Commonwealth Relations That's Office. right yes and there is no doubt that at the end 
he had made it quite clear that there is no question of any concession to the Republican government without the consent of the Northern Ireland, people of the North of Ireland. That's absolutely certain. And um, I certainly remember Noel Baker, I remember his vehemence, and I remember uh, Hartnett pleading with him, you know, that it's essential that there's going to be trouble and we'll have to have our way and so on. And the main discussion was that there should that the, the, the Irish should get hold of the whole of Ireland, that the whole business of the, of the partition issue, that it should end, that they should get out of Ireland, that, you know, it should be a united Ireland, and, and that um, the main thing came out of it, and this is very vehemently and angrily argue, argued towards the end. They were, all, they were very angry. I'm afraid I didn't take much part in it at all. But um, they were very angry at the end, and I was left with the absolute assurance, and I'm sure this must have reflected Attlee's uh, attitude. And this is all particularly interesting, because it appears that Costello believed that Attlee and the Labour government were fr well disposed towards them, and whether he got this from Sean, but I don't think Sean could have come back from, from the mail without knowing for certain that there was no question of a concession on partition from uh, the Attlee government. But were those Mayo talks on partition expected to produce tangible results? Professor Patrick Lynch. It's so long ago uh, that uh, members of that government and indeed of the opposition they had such little understanding of the implications of the, of the partition issue. All of them are so imbued with a naive belief that uh, their good terms with Attlee might well lead to some action. But what kind of action Attlee or, or any Prime Minister could take, I, I can't even imagine. I have not aware of any grounds whatever for uh, expecting a tangible movement on partition in July or at any time during the summer, beyond their close friendship with Attlee. The Sunday Observer, reporting on these discussions, headlined a front page, Anglo-Irish Whispers Denied. Following these rumours, the Stormont Parliament reintroduced recruitment for the B-Specials. Professor Patrick Lynch again. Discussion on the question of the B-Specials was so continuous between Costello and McBride that I don't recall anything in particular in, in that week. That's very, very interesting. Uh, discussion was continuous from when? Well, from even before McBride became a member of the government. He had been critical of the B-Specials. What did he say? Uh, of Critical of the manner in which they were recruited. Any examples? Well, discriminative general issue. They were they were seen as an expression, as an extreme expression of discrimination against the nation, the nationalist community. Did Costello feel this? Not to the, I would say not to the same extent as McBride, and I would say in fact the Costello's um, feelings were were more, perhaps more rhetorical than than uh, practical. 
Against his background of disappointment on partition, the Irish Cabinet met on the 19th of August 1948. They postponed a decision on whether to accept an informal invitation to the Prime Minister's Commonwealth meeting. Is it possible that during the discussions on attendance at the Commonwealth Prime Minister's meeting there was a consensus or even a decision to repeal the External Relations Act? Dr Noel Brown. Well, fortunately, I don't think it matters. What I think, insofar as that the evidence since disclosed by the state paper shows that there was no formal decision in the sense that, for instance, I, as Minister for Health, when I wanted a a bill amended, nursing bill, I remember I brought in the amendment to the 47 Health Act, there was a very, very strict formality uh, which was inevitable in a multi-party cabinet like that, otherwise all sorts of decisions would be taken. And, but was uh, not a consensus within the government to repeal the Act? Even yourself said that you didn't mind it. Yes, but that's quite a different thing. I mean, you had the extremes. You had, say, Dick Mulcahy at one end, and it's very difficult to compare me to Dick Mulcahy or Joe Bloick, that I mightn't have minded it. But uh, whether J- Dick Mulcahy or indeed... Uh, McGilligan minded it or not. But the main thing was that you could not get a cabinet decision in that coalition without submitting a document, making your case for the change, whatever it might be, and that would initiate, nearly inevitably would initiate a response from your 12 or whatever it was, colleagues, agreeing, disagreeing, or taking a particular position and you then had to deal with their objections in a subsequent cabinet meeting uh, and possibly more cabinet meetings. Are there any records of interdepartmental discussions or cabinet memoranda relating to the repeal of the External Relations Act prior to John Costello's announcement in Canada? Professor Ronan Fanning. Absolutely none. There was no preparatory bureaucratic work of that kind of which I'm aware. Uh, That might not, however, be altogether surprising because what strikes one very much when the decision has been taken, um, the inter-party government, even then, seem not to have believed that there was very much prospect of the British retaliating in any way. They seem to have believed that Although the British wouldn't like it, as they hadn't liked any of uh, de Valera's initiatives in Anglo-Irish relations in the 30s when he rewrote the constitutional relationship, nevertheless, they wouldn't do anything. Uh, And the fundamental mistake they made on that score was that de Valera was extremely careful not to give the British government an opportunity for responding. Towards the end of August 1948, John Costello left for Canada to address the Canadian Bar Association. De Valera's anti-partition campaign was snapping at his heels. The effect of De Valera's campaign could have been stymied if Costello could get the British government to accept that the procedures of the External Relations Act were defunct and also no longer insist on the formalities attached to membership of the Commonwealth. Would the British play along by, for example, recognising a separate toast to the President of Ireland? Certainly, that solution appears to have been achieved by Eyre's High Commissioner in Canada, John Hearn. He had arranged for a separate toast to the President of Ireland to be given 
at a dinner hosted by the Governor-General of Canada, Lord Alexander. What happened to John Costello in Canada? Dr Noel Brown. What did motivate Costello? Did he see the headline and then make his decision? Was it Roaring Meg exclusively and the bad manners of the, of, of, of the, to his wife and so on that, that motivated, motivated him? It's very difficult to know. Certainly, John Costello was offended when his host, an Ulsterman, Lord Alexander, placed the cannon, Roaring Meg, on the table beside John Costello. John Costello described the cannon as the guns used against our people. Professor Patrick Lynch was at that dinner. The relationship between Lord Alexander and himself was not good. Um, I think neither was very good at small, small talk. And I do know that he resented the um, a piece of small talk in which Lord Alexander did indulge, which was reminding him that these were replicas of Rolling Meg. But he certainly did not react in any way. Um, I was uh, observing the whole, the whole performance and uh, uh, there was nothing in the nature of the, the violent reaction that some people have suggested took to place. The morning after that dinner in Canada, the Sunday Independent in Ireland carried the banner headline External Relations Act to Go. Where did the then editor, Hector Legg, receive his information from? Professor Patrick Lynch. Hector believes that it was editorial inspiration led him to produce that, <laughs> that headline on that Sunday morning. He knows and that I don't believe that. I'm certain he was informed from some source. It may have been through Paddy Quinn. Or do you think Hector Legg had a leak minister leaking information to him? He was very friendly with both James Dillon and Sean McBride. More so with? James Dillon. My personal view is that it was James Dillon, but Hector denies that absolutely. Professor Roland Fanning also questions Hector Legg's source. I, I think what there unquestionably is, somebody gave Hector Legg a story. Now, he's always refused to reveal his source. Mm-hmm. I think now that we're in a situation with 30-year rules and historical documents, I think 40 years afterwards, he might perhaps do the historians a favour and reveal his source at this stage. Um, however, that's, that's a matter for, for Hector Legg. This is how former editor of the Sunday Independent, Hector Legg, responds to those questions. <laughs> I'm tired contradicting that. There was no such thing as a leak. I knew my bride quite well. I would never ask my bride anything about that. Or Dylan, I was very friendly with James Dylan. No way. There was no such thing as a leak. I not, mean, it's it's th- there. Not, not in the not in the not in the formal way. But would they have told no, you about no, no, any discussions? No, no, no. They would, no. Did they mention the external relations? No, no. I didn't talk to anybody about the external. Are you going to abolish it? I never did. Because if you want to be friendly with cabinet ministers or that, you don't, don't seek to ask, embarrass them by asking questions that you know they shouldn't answer. If after 40 years there had been a leak, would you tell who your informant was? Well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a question, though. That's a great big if there, if there had been. Well, actually, I hadn't spoken to anybody about it. 
I like to say sometimes I use the phrase, it was my womanly intuition, but I suppose I really should say journalistic intuition. John Costello knew that he would be asked questions about the Sunday Independent headline, External Relations Act to Go, at a press conference to be held on Tuesday. How would he respond? Professor Patrick Lynch. After, after all, I, I have those discussions with John Heron. And with John Heron earnestly pleaded with him not to discuss the matter. For hours. Is there a possibility that and when rem- he... And I remember he's, he's saying in indignation, he said, John, look, that has appeared in today's Tuesday for the press conference, or tomorrow's Tuesday, that surely to goodness uh, they would have known that I have been sent the contents of the Sunday Independent. I have to say that I have no, that I have no comment to, me, to make on a new newspaper article of three days ago. That's something that's not really in my, in, in my nature. At that press conference, held in the Railway Committee Room of the Parliament Buildings in Ottawa on Tuesday, September the 7th, 1948, John Costello, as recollected by him, was asked by a reporter from the Gazette Montreal if it was his government's intention to repeal the External Relations Act. The Gazette Montreal, the following day, reported on page two that John Costello had stated it was his government's intention to ditch the External Relations Act. Since that announcement in Canada, there's been controversy about whether the decision to repeal the External Relations Act was taken before he made that announcement in Canada. John Costello explains. What happened was the decision to repeal the External Relations Act was taken by the government unanimously before we left for, uh, before I left for, for Canada. Bruce Arnold spoke to the former Secretary of the Department of External Affairs, Frederick Boland. He asked him whether there was a decision in the Cabinet to repeal the External Relations Act. Frederick Boland remembers a consensus to repeal the External Relations Act, but that no decision was made to the timing or method by which, as he said, the job would be done. They had discussed it, I know, twice in the Cabinet, and there was a consensus, you know, that the Act would go. But there was no decision as to when and how the job would be done. Were the British government disappointed that they had not been consulted before John Costello's made his announcement in Canada of his government's intention to repeal the External Relations Act? Dr Noel Brown and Professor Ronan Fanning. I think you could say they were disappointed in Costello and they, they would, I think, unquestionably have been disappointed that the head, the Fine Gael head of the government was responsible for that announcement. I, I think if it had been Sean McBride who'd been in Canada and Sean McBride had made that announcement, they wouldn't have liked it. But I, I, I don't think perhaps they would have been so surprised as they were. There's, I, I think that element of surprise is a key element. That there's an old uh, axiom in diplomacy that to, con- to con- conduct a successful foreign policy, you should never surprise uh, either allies or potential foes. And uh, Rumby was very annoyed, he's a senior diplomat. And what's more fascinating to me 
rugby knew nothing about it, there were no contacts with him. And then, isn't it true that, uh, was it Noel Baker who was here in Dublin at the time, uh, who was very uh, pro us, but was very angry at the fact that we'd taken this decision to repeal the External Relations Act. But the fact that there had been no prior consultation, not only uh, with the British, but with the colleagues in the cabinet, makes the whole thing an absolute uh, diplomatic mayhem. Nearly four weeks after making the announcement in Canada, John Costello's ship, Britannia, berted in Cove. Family and friends, and is a traditional, members of the cabinet greeted the Taoiseach. They ferried out at seven o'clock in the morning to board the ship. The editor of the Cork Examiner noted that over breakfast, Sean McBride and the Minister of Defence, Dr Tom O'Higgins, were engaged in earnest conversation with John Costlow. Was it necessary to go to such lengths to greet the Prime Minister? Professor Patrick Lynch. I would not certainly attach to it the importance that you, that, that you would, and I would, I would warn you not to attach any historical, not any undue historical importance to festive occasions of that kind. Do you not think they concocted a story no, on board that ship? No, I don't. No, I'm, I'm certain they didn't. I remember the, the circumstances of their coming individually and of, uh, and of the departure. Six days after arriving back in Ireland, John Costello received an aid memoir from the British government. Described by them as a friendly warning, this note threatened to withdraw ERA's most favoured nation status within the Commonwealth. Principally, there was now a danger that Irish citizens in Britain might be given the status of aliens. In response to this note, John Costello, popularly known as Jack, called a meeting in his home later that day. Dr Noel Brown remembers that meeting. Jack was very... Uh, subdued and repentant and gave the impression that he knew that he had done something quite wrong uh, that he hadn't the authority to do it and he was uh, pulling out all the stops emotionally he was uh, he was very sorry for himself and he, he, he then he blurted out this thing and uh, if you want to resign. He blurted it out as a throwaway remark? No, not really as a throwaway. It was an offer of resignation to us. Now, uh, whether it was in his mind a throwaway or not, but I accept it as as an offer for him to resign. Whoever the others were, all I, the only person... McEwan, McEwan, Mulcahy, were they there? I don't... uh, Yeah, McEwan is the only one. Right. Now, McEwan was a very charming person. He was a very easy-going, uh, lightweight of course, but a very, very nice man. I was very fond of him, got on with him very well. But I remember his response particularly because he, he had a curious cajoling way as much as, oh, for heaven's sake, Jack, what are you talking about? There's no need for you to resign. Now that was certainly his response, and my own response was the same as far as we're concerned. I, I assumed I was speaking for Clown Republica. I said, as far as we're concerned, there's no question of resignation. He would presumably have judged that that would be your response. Certainly mine, yes. But he would have judged that. 
I don't think he would have minded much, but I would assume that he had already had, if it were true that Sean had gone out to visit them, he already knew what Clown's response would be. Upon hearing on the radio in 1976 of Noel Brown's account of John Costello's offer of resignation, Hector Legg, that afternoon, telephoned four former cabinet ministers in that government. First, he spoke to James Dillon. I asked him, had he seen the, uh, this meeting? Had he seen the Brown statement? He said, yes. Well, was such a meeting held? And not alone did he say no such meeting was held, but I remember well in his expansive voice saying to me, and I beseech you, have nothing to do with that man. And my reply to that was, yes, I will, James. I said, I have plenty of ammunition. I will continue to deal with him. When I replied to that and gave Brown an opportunity to retract what he has said by praising him for his work as Minister for Health and saying he was probably so engrossed in the work with the, that he had made a mistake about this meeting. But instead of retracting it, he's always repeated it. Then the next one then was Sean McBride. No meeting was held. Then the next one was Paddy Lynch. No such meeting was held. Then Declan Costello, the son, that no meeting could have been held in the House without he knowing about it. So there you are. How serious was John Costello's offer of resignation for making that decision to announce the repeal of the External Relations Act in Canada? Dr Noel Brown. And your answer to your question is we didn't have the right, or we might have had the right, but we wouldn't have accepted the right to say, yes, you are no longer our Taoiseach. It was deferred then for a full meeting of the Cabinet, and the full meeting of the Cabinet ratified his decision retrospectively. That full Cabinet meeting, which included Dr Noel Brown, was held on Monday, October the 11th, 1948. The minutes to that meeting read, The action taken by the Taoiseach during his visit to Canada and the USA of America was approved. Did the Declaration of the Republic affect partition? John Costello. It was inevitable that that declaration should have been made. I did explain in the second reading in the Doyle of the Republic of Ireland Bill that the consideration of its effect upon the solution of the problem of partition was the one matter that held my, so far as my influence concerned, behind that the Declaration of the Republic and the enactment of, of the Republic of Ireland Act. The one thing that held my hand in connection with that was the question how far it would affect the, the, the hope of a united Ireland. And I explained, and I'm still of the view, that it had no effect whatever, that if we had still remained a member of the Commonwealth of Nations, that if we had become imperialists and waved the Union Jack as in a way it never had been done before in order to achieve partition, that that would not have achieved partition. That there was such an, an intransigent attitude towards the unification of Ireland in the North at that time uh, that there would be no hope whatever, even if we had remained in the Commonwealth of Nations. One final reflection on Anglo-Irish relations, specifically relating to partition from Una O'Higgins O'Malley. If what we're on about is ending partition, if on the other hand what we're on about is um, dispensing with any possible links with Britain, and that seems to me what the Declaration of the Republic was, then of course that it was the right thing to, to declare the Republic and repeal the External Relations Act. But 
Like, where does that leave partition? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.